Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Looking Outside. I've had a few futurists on the show, and it's safe to say that futurists are incredibly adept at putting forward balanced perspectives. They are, we are the ultimate pragmatists. So today I have another futurist joining me, but we're going to go to a darker place to talk about the need to imagine the worst futures, ones that are dystopic. A big, big welcome to the show to Nicholas Bamington. Hey, Nick. Yeah. Hi, how's it going? Great. I'm so excited that we could finally do this. I think I rescheduled on Nick like three times such an honor to have you on the show it's good i mean last time we we chatted properly i think we were having dinner in toronto so uh so this is good to be uh connected here i'm super excited to be on the podcast yeah me too we connected in toronto in real life can you imagine and i had nick sign my book for me so for anyone watching on camera i have a personally signed copy don't be jealous I'm sure Nick would do the same for you if he met you in yeah, person. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so for anybody that doesn't know you, let's do a, a little intro. Yeah, so I, I'm a Brit. I now live in Toronto, Canada. I moved to uh, Canada in 2008. I used to live in Vancouver. Now I live in Toronto. And uh, I'm a futurist. I basically spend my days uh, preparing for keynotes, writing, writing papers, advising clients, organizing events, doing podcasts, and trying to write my next book. Uh, and and what I do is is really draw on the experience that I've had throughout my life. Now, I grew up in a very small place in the southwest of England. 4,000 people, my father ran the slaughterhouse. And what was really interesting was at that time, you know, we were in the grips of Thatcher's Britain. It was very, like, work, working class. But at the age of eight, as part of the school book club, I was bought the Osborne Book of the Future, which was asking people to imagine the world in the year 2000 and beyond. And and it was really interesting, you know, as a, as a little kid, it was like, we're going to be, we're going to live on the moon. We're going to live in cities under the ocean. There's going to be robots everywhere and wearable computing and self-driving cars and the Hyperloop and all these things. So eight years old, I, my, my sort of imagination was fired up and all the sci-fi that I was watching as well. So I think it's inevitable that I was going to be a futurist, but between then and now, you know, I spent a lot of years at uh, university. I studied psychology and computing. I studied artificial intelligence in the 90s and language. So that's super interesting considering where we are today. I spent about 20, 25 years working at the sharp end of data analytics and building out very large behavioral targeting uh, infrastructure. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting ride. Uh, I kind of feel that I've sort of uh, filled out the resume a little bit to prepare me for the future's work that I do today. Yeah, definitely. And so that book that you read when you were little, I mean, obviously that's like, I think when a lot of people think about futurists, it's the, those classic visions of the future, flying cars, et cetera. Yeah. And so a lot of the comments that we get is like, when the heck is this thing coming? So I know that some futurists think that change is slower than we think. Yeah. The common narrative is that it's it's moving at a very rapid pace. Where do you stand on that? 
It's interesting, you know. Um, there's a bunch of people that, that hit the stage. It's like more will change in the next ten years than did in the previous two hundred. It's kind of garbage, to be honest. Mm-hmm. What, what what's kind of happening is um, we've got additive effects. Everything's accretive, so the future's being laid on top of what's there today. So as we progress forward, it's layers upon layers upon layers of complexity. And I think this this more than anything else is why people sort of hire us to come and do the work because. The world is is infinitely complex. There's infinite futures ahead of us. I mean, we're trying to work out what's going to happen. There's no switches where you just turn off one system and another system replaces it and whatever. We're, we're going to find that because for 300 years, we've had this these industrial revolutions create this incredibly complicated world. So, you know, we could end oil and gas, cool, but there's no switch to switch from one to the other. I'm a great believer in hybrid and transitionary worlds. And to do that kind of work is really important because you've got to kind of grab people by the hand and and take them through this journey. But, you know, some years feels like, you know, there's a lot of change happening very quickly, but that's because people haven't been watching particular trends like happen before. So generative AI, if you'd been following that field for the last 10 to 15 years, you knew that something very interesting was coming and it was going to gain pace and it was going to have some sort of public impact and, and visibility. But like, the entire world suddenly 100 million people sign up for <laughs> open open ai in like 60 days 100 million people 60 day and everyone's you know oh my god we didn't see this coming you know and everyone's worried about you know terminator and like hundreds of millions of jobs like being switched off mckinsey writes pithy reports you know, saying executives must read this and this is going to change every aspect of your business and it's going to be like a $7 trillion marketplace, whatever. I'm making up some numbers. But this this narrative's kind of interesting, right? So I, I don't yeah. necessarily subscribe to the slow or the fast. I subscribe to the wake up, pay attention to what's happening and then um, speculate on what comes next in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you're the second person today to bag out McKinsey that I've been speaking with. And, you know, it happens because like a lot of these consultancies, they do act as pseudo futurists for organizations right. who are trying to get that kind of perspective of what's coming. So what, what, I guess I'm curious, what do you think is the biggest difference between what they would do in looking at the future and projecting and what a futurist or a true foresight practitioner would do? Yeah. It's interesting. I actually come from a background of working both in management consultancy. I worked for a company called Capgemini for a number of years, and prior to that, a smaller company called Detica that became part of BAE Systems. So I come from their world. You know, I've, I've met tons of people from McKinsey and PwC, Accenture, all these different places, and there's some really fantastic people, and there's actually some really good foresight practitioners. I mean, I run the Futurist Think Tank. There's a number of us around the world. Typically, I've got a core team of three to five people that I work with with clients. Number one, you know, they speak to me and then we scope out the work and then we do the work with them and we follow them through and take them on the journey and we're adaptive and we're quick and we're lithe. I think the biggest difference is, you know, a lot of times people go go and speak to consultancies and they get sold the A team and suddenly they get like the B team and you, they get a lot of young, very keen people that don't have, you know, the, the mileage uh, uh, behind them of, of, of having done this work or even strategic planning at depth. They're incredibly smart people, right? So you end up with these 
I think, near future ideas of what's going to happen, which kind of satiates uh, executives. And that's another problem. When you're a large consultancy, you generally don't want to upset anyone. And I sort of say that I get hired for saying and working in ways that I used to get fired for working like. Because, <laughs> you, you know, challenging a CEO or an executive director or a CIO or a CFO and you're this small, you know, self-run sort of consultancy and think tank, it's fine because mm-hmm. it's it's a relationship, it's honesty, and it's good. Um, you do that in a large organization that, and it's potentially got ripples all the way up to the bottom back and uh, you're without a job, right? And that's happened to me a couple of times in my life. I enjoyed my, my time as a management consultant. I'll be honest, in Capgemini was the last place I worked. Fantastic. I mean, advertising was a little bit more brutal, but uh, I find myself in a very lucky position to have people approach me to do interesting work and you know generally like if 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 they if they want to step up and they want to work with me and my team and they want to be challenged then then we do the work and uh they get valuable insights and can change how they think and do things mm-hmm. yeah definitely and i think provocation is a really important part of that and right. you mentioned that before you're kind of like the I say positive troublemaker, like you're sort of tasked with being that voice in the room that's going to shake people up a little bit. But it's kind of counter to what you were saying before, where you're also the voice of objectivity and pragmatism of like, you know, maybe these things here were overstating, maybe these things over here, we're not paying enough attention to, you kind of have to sit in the middle. So how do you balance being, you know, that pragmatic voice with being the provocateur? I think it, it's kind of it's kind of been burnt into the way that I do work over the last like three decades. Honestly, it's how I've always operated. I've never sort of apologized for the work. And uh, some people connect. Some like very few like struggle to connect and and have issues with it. So I think people like the how refreshing it is. You know, you have to do the like, and and sometimes this irks like foresight folk. You have to do futures work with a purpose, and that purpose is to find evidence of a place in a future horizon, maybe ten to twenty years, that indicates a future and a story that can give us some indications of what we need to start considering today, and you know, use backcasting and other methods to really sort of hone in our skills on, you know being better at strategy. Now, I, I say, you know, very catchily that that foresight is the missing link between disruption and and strategy, right? And, and it's really important because disruption seems to be running away from us and you can't catch it and suddenly, you know, te- technological solutions or cultural shifts uh, are suddenly very difficult to, to sort of capture and, and, and calm down so that they can be tamed. So really, futurists are trying to sort of wrangle them into some space of understanding and to bring them back to people with a very honest view around, you know, what's going to happen. One example, I did a project uh, earlier this year. I worked with a large company, and they'd been asked by a group of people to to look at, you know, autonomous flying vehicles, so AAMs, or flying cars, you could call them. But like, you know, vehicles for for commuting, traffic, and whatever in, in large cities. And I worked with their their internal team and we went through this and, you know, the hypothesis was, you know, this is going to be part of large cities. We're going to have to make this happen. It's going to not only provide commuting transportation, it's going to be transfers to the airport. It's going to be about policing. It's going to be about emergency services. And so we went through all the scenarios and really found that the evidence wasn't there to support any kind of public transportation angle 
obviously out in the world you've got cities like dubai and whatever that are saying flying cars everywhere and and i guess <laughs> under duress people do that and you know for for enjoyment and for something funky and new people are going to do that and it's going to be interesting in these places that are desperate to paint themselves in in sort of that that frame of a future but but really you know coming in and you know telling a group of 14 people that believe that this is going to happen that maybe the picture looks a little bit more differently and it's very well thought through is the best work that we can do. And what we find is people can be upset, but they're, they're also going to be incredibly happy that they haven't you know, literally spent millions of dollars trying to create something that has got a huge amount of issue to it. Right. And with their heads in the clouds, right, quite literally in this case. Um, so one of the things that we've heard a lot is, you know, the metaverse is, is kind of touted as an example of where yeah. maybe we didn't like do the research properly. It's not that it's a bad idea or that it won't happen. It's that everyone kind of like rushed into it. So I guess that, like one of the major lessons of foresight, right, is like don't rush into anything. Bring the experts in, do your analysis, really yeah. understand how this is trending People are desperate for a new future. People are desperate for a new today. People are desperate to, to get away from the drudgery of work in real life. They they want some messianic technology that's going to free them from the you know the central banking system. If we start thinking about cryptocurrency and you know when, when Bitcoin started, I thought it was really interesting and, and very valid. And o- over the years, it's it's become an incredibly toxic place. Then you've got like the, the, these new ideas like metaverse and whatever. It's like the technology wasn't there today. Some of the big videos from like Meta and Zuckerberg, it was 10 to 15 years out. Good spec futures work, Joe. Really good spec <laughs> futures work. And I'm I'm all for it. And and I think that, you know, sometimes Silicon Valley and whatever can do a really great job of spec um, spec futures. But it's it's like that sizzle reel. It doesn't exist today, but give us all your money and believe and suddenly it's going to come a lot quicker and everyone's sort of waiting at the train station and the train still hasn't been built, right? It, so, you know, I, I look at all these things. It's like right now we're stuck in this like loop of, you know, so crypto and metaverse, AI, you know, <laughs> it's... You know, I, I stand in front of audience and say, who's heard of ChatGPT? And like everyone, it's like, who's used it for work? And like two people at the back put their hands up and it's like, that's a bad <laughs> idea. You know, these, these are people that work with very strict regulations and planning. I met a, a, a company that once, oh yeah, we threw our data in there and it formatted it beautifully. It was amazing. I was like, do you own that data? You know, and they licensed this data. So they basically completely screwed their agreement um, with their data provider, I said, don't tell anyone that you did this, right? <laughs> There's this sort of, you know, we just we just need to get better. We we want to be better. We, you know, I think people just want to do less work and they want to or, or work that's more interesting. Now, I think in the long run, we're going to see things change. I think there's going to be a lot of automation. I do think there's going to be a lot of help. And I think a lot of closed uh, AI, generative AI systems are going to be really useful for people. But um, right now we're in we're in the muck and the mire of new technology and the promises. I mean, the lead guy from OpenAI did a world tour telling everyone to calm down, right? <laughs> and meanwhile, yeah, everyone's telling. like, "We love this. This is amazing." But he's like, "No, no, 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 no!" Right? It, it's crazy. It's damage limitation yeah. because uh, the lawyers are coming. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, also there's uh, maybe a lacking responsibility there that if you open this thing up and like. Like, no offense to anybody who is excited about open AI, but 
Of course, the adoption rate would have been high when you open it up to the world. You can't compare it to something where there's a paywall, there's a high price for entry, there's limited or exclusive distribution. I mean, he basically just gave this to the masses, to the people who have no yeah. prior experience with AI, to the layperson, to with no instructions for the everyday worker of what is appropriate to put into this thing versus what is not. And let's be honest, like, most of the things that we were seeing out of ChatGPT was poems, like really badly written poems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I did that in Zagreb, Croatia this year, and I put in like uh, the, this very famous national treasure of a poet. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I did a good job of it or whatever, <laughs> but it was kind of fun. It's kind of funny to do that. And even if it's sort of butchered, you know, even an English translation and a feeling of, of someone that has now passed away, but a, a national icon. It's sort of a, a big lesson, right? Yeah. I've written articles with it and whatever, but like, you know, this is pushing us towards uh, creativity being owned, um, creativity being ripped off. You know, Austin Cleon talks a lot about, you know, everything is a remix. I think, I think we're now starting to really find out that, you know, one company is owning the remix engine or a few companies are owning that, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, we're starting to, I think, very naturally in this conversation, go into darker futures yeah. and more of those uh, less happy ones. And I just want to link this back to the point that you made before, which I think is really important that it's the link between disruption and strategy that you talked about. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the times when you're helping an organization to build a strategy, and you would know this better than I would being an outsider looking in at how companies are taking foresight, but yeah. a lot of it feels like help us to maintain, like help us to find the future that allows us to keep doing what we're doing and what right. we've always been doing or an ideal state essentially where we grow and we just do more of what we've always been doing. So how do you bring in a more dark or a more pessimistic future into that mix in a way that doesn't completely shut off the audience? So there's been a big problem in the world that where we've we've been afraid to uh, look into the darkness, but like really wonder what might what bad might happen. You know, politicians are saying, "Vote me in in four years, everything's going to be better." You know, um, for example, Brexit. Um, you know, and, and, and so now we're we're at a point where we have to be real. We have to understand that things exist, like the pandemic, like Brexit, and like a whole bunch of war and 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 struggling times in the world, like global warming and extreme temperatures and all of these things that I think we've been very scared of having very frank, honest conversations about. And you know, you can look at both positive futures, which is incredibly important. I'm deeply optimistic. And also these dystopic futures. What's interesting is, and let me read the definition of both positive and dystopian futures that I sort of uh, wrote about in, in my book. So positive futures is a world where we have a global view and infrastructure to support improving health and wellness re and reducing wealth disparity. A world where we design humanity-centric, balanced and egalitarian solutions to our greatest challenges. Sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> it doesn't kind of exist today that that in, in many places. Dystopic futures or dystopian futures is a world where we perpetuate the reliance on the industrial complex supported by a military action and conflict and where billionaires and shareholders are rewarded ahead of any of the users of technology solutions and platforms. A world that's led by short-term thinking and greed and where personal protectionism is apparent and ashamed. 
I very clearly and explicitly said that these are the two sides of the coin for facing our futures and in my positive dystopian framework because you I want you to feed these signals and trends through these you know sausage machines and suddenly come out at the end and then just knit those sausages together in a way right <laughs> to to create something that's slightly slightly optimistic and incredibly uh, positive and something that's just got a, a a shadow to that that says we can make some bad decisions even with all this cool stuff that's happening today and even with these signals that we're finding and these trends that are starting to become apparent. And it's like a warning. But what's interesting is you have the opportunities and then you have the risks and you have the challenges. So what's great about the work that I do is that suddenly people are starting to see you know, all sides of, of what's happening really and and they can be very real. I mean, some some of the the negative outcomes can come directly from business models that exist today or ways of working that exist today. Having that evidence at a 10, 20 year horizon with some speculative futures really sort of jerks them into action to fix some of that bad behavior, right? And I think there's a lot to be fixed. And, you know, like I said, in positive futures, like wealth disparity and, you know, it's not for the shareholder, it's for the person and whatever. And we've kind of created a world of economics and wealth and and, and progress that's, that's not very human, right? So that's what I do to try and think. And, uh, you know, some people sort of argue against we should be doing that or we should just be unbridled positive futures, you know, crafters in a way. We miss so much of the story. What's the negative of doing that? What is the downside of planning towards idealized or positive futures? What do you miss? It's just unrealistic. It's completely unrealistic. So uh, one particular example, I, I think it was like India came out and they said, we're going to be uh, carbon net zero by 2070. It means absolutely nothing. You know it's better to set yourself two to three year targets of gradual improvement over time. Sure, you can have 2070 as that, that, that sort of that last pinnacle that you're heading towards, but it's so far away that no one can take it seriously. They can't even imagine themselves in that future psychologically. You can't, can't even imagine yourself existing. And like three quarters of the people that we're talking about this are going to be dead anyway, right? <laughs> right. So it, it, there's, there's something about being real about this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying to become short-term thinking, you know, in the way that you approach things, but you can set a future horizon and an aspirational place to be, but then you can start putting, you know, plans in place. And that's what I think is really important is sort of really missing. I mean, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of long-termism and that's sort of been bastardized in, in 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 its use by you know i'm thinking you know we're thinking about space colonies and transhumanism and leaving this planet and whatever it's, yeah. it's as bad as all the moonshots you know mm -hmm. you know let's do go for a moonshot no one can afford it no one can afford to hit a moonshot look google x has kind of failed um all the moonshot factories around the world have just got a bunch of ideas on a shelf or on a whiteboard and nothing's happened and it's because you've got to be radically creative and you've got to think of new ways to go forward to a future point without suddenly thinking it's like hey there's new tech over there let's put this in a box and see if it works right I, yeah, anyway.
Yeah. Well, I think that the point is really important, particularly for corporations setting targets, um, because obviously there's the whole topic of greenwashing and that you're not using science to create your targets. But then there's the other part of it where maybe you're over optimistic or or you're over ambitious to show progress. And like we're seeing so many companies that are backtracking on their 2030 net zero targets and like Crocs obviously is a recent example. (laughs) You're also like, to your point, you're seeing a lot of governments that are setting targets that are unrealistic. You would be closer to this than me, but I remember when I was with the Canada team, I was saying to them, I think it was that they have a goal of 25% of vehicles being electric in the next five or 10 years. And at the moment they're at 4%. Like there's just no, no way that that goal is going to happen. So like, why do people set people slash government agencies and corporate leaders? Why do they set these goals that can't be met? Like, is it driven by a hope that they will get there? Or do you think it is actually just BS? I, I don't mind. I don't mind people setting these big audacious goals. I mean, we've been conditioned to like, you know, set big, hairy, audacious goals, go for it. You know, that's cool. When it comes to politicians and policy and regulation, you know, import, export, price of goods, cost of living, inflation, it's incredibly complicated. And you could look at all of these dimensions of change. I mean, here in Canada, we've we've basically got we've got a province, Alberta, that's just like canning like, you know, the the opportunity for any new sort of green technology or renewable energy projects to get off the ground because we're still pumping oil and we're still Alberta and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it, it's it's kind of crazy. Politicians are the absolute worst futurists. Um <laughs> mostly because they're nostalgic for how good we were. And secondly, because, well, secondly, they're self-interested. And thirdly, even if they're hugely altruistic, they've got a really bad set of advisors that are too scared to make big gambles that are 20, 30 years out because no one's going to be there. And actually, no one's going to vote for them, right? And it's kind of interesting to me when you look at countries like China, where you're going to have President Xi in charge for, for decades, right? Potentially. Yeah. Because actually, it's like, that's sensible. But then, oh, no, it's dictatorship. But then, or totalitarianism. But it's yeah. like, you know, but is that is that the best way to do future stuff? Because someone's going to believe in it and follow it through. It's yes, super interesting, bit. right? Um, we've kind of created a, a, a real cluster of society that's that's struggling with its own success, you know, and its own sort of comfort. And there's not enough people jolting people out of their seats to take action, right? And I think we're going to see more of that happening. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful segue to an area that I want to talk about, jolting people out of their seats, is thinking about preposterous futures. So you talk Mm. about this in the book a little bit. It's like taking people to scenarios that are ridiculous and impossible that really almost like tap into things that are, I guess, on the edge of extreme, but are still realistic and have the data and the evidence behind them. What's the starting point for that? What's the starting point? It's really interesting. So I got a chance to chat to uh, Dr. Joseph Voros, and he's down in in Australia. And as part of the research in my um, uh, as part of the research in my book, I, I interviewed a few people. Uh, with Dr. Wendy Schultz out of the UK, who's incredible. People like Joseph Voros and uh, Carl Schrader and, and whatever. And when I was chatting to Joe Voros, he he was sort of talking about you know how he added the 
the preposterous to to, to the list of uh, the P's of futures. He just thought it was a really good word. And the fact is, it, you know, it, it sort of leans on what um, Jim Data out of the University of Hawaii, uh, Manoa, said. Any useful idea about the future should appear, should appear to be ridiculous. It's never going to happen. In fact, I was I was working with a client um, a while back, and we were talking about uh, level five driving cars. And I haven't met anyone that's willing to put like money on this actually happening, right? But I, I actually think it will. And there are a number of reasons for it. And sure, it might be in the next 20 to 30 years, but absolutely will happen. Um, and it might be localized and jurisdictional and whatever, depending on road conditions and whatever. But like, um, there, there was this analyst that came in, he was like, this is never going to happen. And then I came in, <laughs> I was the keynote about two hours later. It was a fantastic session with a very large auto group. And it's like, never say never, right? Blockbuster and Netflix, right? Blockbuster didn't buy Netflix. People are never, ever going to you know, have a subscription for videos, let alone an online <laughs> subscription, right? Kodak, who invented the digital camera. People are never going to have digital cameras replacing film cameras. Well, they, they went bankrupt, didn't they? So, you know, there's lots of examples of, you know, um, another one, Xerox. And this is what I talk about in my keynotes. So Xerox had the team that, 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 that basically designed the mouse, the first personal computing. They started off in Stanford working with uh, Douglas Engelbart, amazing guy, and then into Xerox with the Alto computer. And the executives were like, well, we're, we're creating more better copiers, but no one's really going to have a computer at home, right? And um, Steve Jobs came in, gave 100,000 shares to Xerox and, and bought the rights to use a lot of the technology and then launched uh, Macintosh. And the story I, I sort of talk about is that Xerox is worth it. It's, it's laughable. About $2.16 billion in uh, market cap. And Apple, uh, what, just under $3 trillion? <laughs> Right. So this never, yeah. this, you know, never say never is one of the biggest pieces of advice I can give to anyone sort of examining their business or examining the competitive landscape. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can look around and you can find companies that are just not going to make it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're never going to we're never going to land space rockets. We're never going to, you know, have highly performant electric vehicles that can drive a million miles in their lifetime. We're never going to have this. We're never going to have that. Yeah, you know, I, I I like to really double down on that and really uh, sort of bite my teeth into into people that you know struggle. And um, the devil's advocates in the room, a devil's advocate can kill every single idea. Yeah, yeah, they're highly skilled at that. I think it's a really good um, to answer the question. You know, the like, where do you start with that? G like giving examples of where this has happened before, I think, is a really powerful yeah. thing. And for anyone not familiar with data's laws of the future, I can drop that into the sh um, show notes so that you can read up about that a little bit more. But I like how it's connected to what you're saying because he talks about, you know, that the useful ideas are the ones that should be the most ridiculous. Yeah. I guess connected into that, though, is like these examples that were ridiculous at the time, that were like outlandishly ridiculous, like um, what Uber has done, what Airbnb has done, Kodak, et cetera, they're used quite a lot. Do yeah. you think that we're becoming desensitized to that level of disruption that's happened in the past? I think so. Like 10 years ago, it was like a wild new world of platforms and, you know, SaaS platforms. And yeah, like 
I'm never going to a hotel again. I'm never going to use a normal taxi again. I'm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting. I think Tom Goodwin said something interesting is happening. Well, something interesting is happening now that all those uh, businesses that were established before doing that work have now learned from the disruptors and now disrupting the disruptors. And I think we should re- remember that that that's a you know that's a virtuous cycle. And in in that competitive world, you have to have some stamina. Right, if you're trying to disrupt, I mean, I use Uber all the time. I use Airbnb very occasionally, very, very occasionally. Ten years ago, it was a completely different story, right? It's um, it's interesting. Like when things fundamentally challenge business models and the ways work, way things work, the public are kind of the people that that are, are fickle about it. Um, but they're also they're not they're not loyal to anyone. Right. right. So I, I think maybe, and, and no one's going to be loyal to your idea of a future, but you can kind of get a conversation going and understand you know, their their worries and their their excitement and whatever, you know, metaverse or crypto or or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm curious about is, because I know that in the book you talk a little bit about like, you know, when you were reading Animal Farm in 1984 and it kind of like, um, you know, sparked these thoughts in you around this crumbling societies, corporate yeah. authoritarianism and where the world is headed. We have that. And I know you touch on this in the book as well a little bit. It's like the mental health crisis that we're facing. Is mm. Do you think that we're, sometimes we lean too much into dystopic thinking because we're also weighed down by the anxieties of the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I it, it's kind of the... I don't often sit down and talk about multi-generational trauma and the mental health crisis that, that's sort of happening around the world. You know, the world survived multiple world wars, abuse and, and atrocities of war and whatever. And it perpetuates through the generations epigenomically. You know, it sort of lives in the gene expressions. And you, you, whilst you can disrupt it, it's very difficult to do that across, you know, billions of p- people in society, right? So, so I, I really, I really do talk about that. And it's probably one of the most difficult structural changes that we can try and change. And this is why things like psychedelics and whatever, as a, as a treatment, suddenly it's a revelation. I mean, it's been around for like four plus thousand years as 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 some sacrament in sort of a, a slightly religious context, and now it's suddenly healing us of the trauma of the last uh, you know few generations, and and it's a revelation. But I think it's a signpost to a lot of positive futures and opportunities, and, and the death of the ego. Because mm. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a slippery fish when we talk about these the psychologies and and some of these uh mental health challenges we got in the world and it's getting worse after the pandemic i mean i'm i'm struggling with uh, a few facets of adhd right now i've got family members that are struggling with you know certain amounts of like substance abuse and whatever and it's uh you know we 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 we, we've become less resilient you know, a slightly negative thinker or a dystopic thinker will have us live in those spaces. And, you know, even misinformation seems like a, a nice soother for the troubles that we have, right? So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an interesting world. It, it's actually more interesting to play with the ideas of, like, you know, bad times and bad futures. It travels faster as news. It's more interesting. You know, it's like the, the whole, uh, you know, the hero's journey. Someone, you know, or was it Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, someone has to die or someone has to suffer. 
Right. Yeah, we, lo- we love a fallen hero as well, right? It's like bring, exactly. bring what, down the good guy. But what about the stories that are just unbridled joy and excitement, right? Yeah, yeah. It's slightly more well, tricky. And and it's sort of connected to what you were saying at the very start is that the positive dystopia, the balance between the two. And um, you talk about this a little bit again in the book, Facing Our Futures. I don't know how many times I've mentioned the book. It's a great book. Go and <laughs> yeah. get it. Thank you. Um, is the concept or what you call yourself as a hope engineer. Yeah. You know, right. Because your hope comes from a place of deep concern about the world and the state of the world. Yep. But with a, a willingness um, through hope and the desire to create a more positive world, to turn it into something better. Yeah. I I came up with the idea of a hope engineer a few years ago, and it really sticks um, because, wow, um, because futurists, what does a futurist really do? You know, you know, can you tell me what future? It's like almost the first question. It's like, well, we need more hope. And we engineer that by, you know, looking at signals and scenarios and well, signals, trends, scenarios, telling stories. And building building us up, right? You see a great film, you walk out, and you're walking a little taller, and whatever. It's because you're you've been injected with this hopeful view of, of maybe yourself, and maybe your family, or friends, or maybe what's going to come next in your life. You know, it's like Tony Robbins punching the air. So there's like that motivational aspect of, of the future's work. And I always talk about this at the end of my keynotes. It's a hope engineering, and everyone's like taken aback. And it really resonates with people because everyone knows what hope is. Everyone can feel it. No, no one really understands what a future is anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you talk about yourself in the driving seat or as a co-pilot to a project or a program, and we're building hope together of something better than we've got today, you know, whether that's a, a view from the protopian futurist or whatever, I, yeah. think, I think that drives a motivation at a very grassroots level. Yeah, I really like that. Definitely. I think that it's um, a big responsibility on the shoulders of futurists to be able to to do that. And, you know, like particularly if you're trying to rally a group of people to create change, yeah, right, not just to be complacent or to bury their heads in the sand, but to actually like any individual at whatever level of the organization to create change, then positivity and like helping them to imagine what could be is such a critical part of that. So I guess I'm curious, like going on a more, a slightly more personal slant for one second, which is like, do you think about, do you think about that and and everything we just talked about, obviously with like the, that trying to balance hope with the like terrible state of the world at the moment and where it's headed. When you think about your son and the fact that now you have a child who's going to be living and growing up in this world. Do I think about that? The other day I sat him down, he's three years old. I was like, I was like, Do you want do you want to take over my business? Do you want to be a futurist when you grow up? He goes, like, Yeah. <laughs> doesn't know, he doesn't know what I'm saying, but I'm gonna hold him to it, right? <laughs> my partner's like slapping me, like, no, he's gonna go to college. And it's like you can go to college, but like, you know, he could be like a sixteen year old futurist. He goes, It sounds precocious, and it's like it sounds awesome, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but when I think about this, you know, like I'm gonna be gone in thirty, thirty five years right? Um, He's going to be, yeah, I'm going to be really old and he's going to be like in his 30s, right? And uh, he's going to be struggling. 
it's going to be a really i don't think people realize how tricky and difficult this world is going to be and how structurally things are going to have to change around um, the management of water energy and food resources of the climate change that has already happened and the extremes that are going to be wrought upon us i live in canada for a very good reason joe and it's because, you know, we're far enough north that whilst it's going to get a bit hot under the collar, we've still got like 21% of the world's fresh water and we're going to be able to really hunker down and survive what's going to be a very, very tricky cycle of, of weather events, right? <laughs> Over the next sort of, you know, 50 to 100 years and then beyond that as well. In, uh, in Europe, places that aren't going to be able to grow food like southern spain and italy and whatever and we're already starting to see signals around that are going to suffer and meanwhile places like belgium are going to have what what politico called in one of its articles um an apocalypse windfall so suddenly they're going to grow all the food that can't be grown in the south but they're going to maintain their climate but there's going to be whole parts of the world that are going to be very very tricky to uh to do anything in right What's well, even interesting because I obviously I'm in, I'm living in the U.S. now in Chicago, but I was living in Australia, and Australia has copped like a, a growing exponential rate of climate related issues for a while now. But we used to say at least we're far away from the politics. Like if a nuke goes off, we're okay. No one's going to travel all the way to Australia with a nuke, yeah, or send it our way. So like even when you're thinking about the catastrophic events of the future, you've got things like climate related issues, but then you've got political yeah. issues, right? It's like you can't escape no matter where you are. Sorry, Nick. <laughs> yeah, and that's okay. You know, um, a few years ago, I, I ended up having a an existential crisis for a couple of days, and I was doing some work around privacy and security and hyperconnectivity and kids getting dementia from uh, using devices too for too long and um, I sat down and you you really have to become meditative and you have to really make peace with the work that you're doing and what's laying ahead we're going to have to become very patient and we're going to have to build resiliency and we're going to have to come together as a society uh, so, um, it's going to get it's even more difficult right so I think uh that that's some of the sort of the rah rah advice that I give people is like you know double down on humanity and bet on the goodness in people's hearts. Yeah, bet on the goodness, build your resiliency. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to end the conversation. So thank you for that. I have one last question before I let you go, and it's what your go-to is when you're trying to gain a fresh perspective, look at something in a new way, look yeah. outside. I'll be honest, like, you know, I consume so much information and sometimes you don't see the wood for the trees and a bike ride, a bike ride is that place, you know, I throw on podcasts, I actually throw on a lot of like, you know, techno or house or, you know, drum and bass or whatever. And I just hack around Toronto and on the, on the, the laneways and the, the trails get near water, sit there, think about things. And suddenly everything becomes a lot clearer and suddenly it is everything's a lot happier. You know, there's a great, great article I read and uh, someone, someone was speaking to this very prominent surgeon in Holland. And they were like, you know, you don't have a car and you cycle to work every day, you know. Well, you know, what is this strange uh, order of affairs, you know, obviously being interviewed from someone outside of Holland. And he was like, you know what? For 15 minutes every day, I feel like a seven-year-old and it's liberating. <laughs> and that's why, that's why I, I ride bicycles around. 
Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. Yeah, I think we, we could all definitely use a little like feeling of um, like being a kid again and having that purity of hope for the future. So thank you for, um, for bringing the conversation from the dystopic through to the hope engineering part and everything in between. It was really, really insightful and very interesting. So Nick, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review or share the show and I will see you next time. Until then, keep looking outside.